was July 5, 1814. The 71-year-old Thomas Jefferson writes a letter to his friend, 78-year-old John Adams. He says, But our machines have been running 70 or 80 years now. We must expect that, worn as they are, here a pivot, there a wheel, now a pinion, next a spring, they will be giving away. However we may tinker them up for a while, all will at length cease motion. It is what we have in common, one of those universal experiences, these bodies cease motion. If you weren't here last Sabbath, you've stepped into part two of our conversation on dying well. And we, we opened up this conversation last week and, and gave permission to speak. And very quickly I got email from some of you and conversation on the sidewalk about your death and dying and the funeral services you're planning. If you weren't here last Sabbath, listen online or talk to someone. It was an honest conversation. Dr. Sproul is known as the chief clinical chaplain at Redlands Community Hospital for a couple of decades now. Interesting to me, the only chaplain at a hospital that size. When I met him several months ago, and I mentioned the story last Sabbath, when I asked him, do Adventist Christians do this death any better than anyone else? He was honest and candid to say, not really. And in that brief conversation, I also said, you know, in Adventist Christianity, I think we live well, hoping it all comes out in the end. And this wise teacher said, Perhaps it is when we examine the end and facing the end well that that would enlighten our living. It's a paradigm shift. Grateful to have this teacher here this morning ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. So as a sister um, sister denomination to us in Christ. He, they call him Chaplain Sproul at work, but he said we could call him Al today. And I ask you, I think it's a good thing for us to welcome him now. Would you do that, church? I'm deeply humbled to have the opportunity to be with you today. Um, My pulpit is often uh, the bedside and a chair. The world I have been called to live in now for 35 years has shaped and molded my understanding of life much differently than when I was a young, youthful lad. Um, Writing theology at the bedside shifts your understanding of who we are in Christ. It's not as neat as the theology of a book that's written in a cloistered environment somewhere or some academic arena. I appreciated the preparation that has been given, prayerful preparation, for this service today. Uh, Chris, you have a wonderful staff. (laughs) I'm envious of you in that regard. And you as a people need to be blessed by them and appreciate them. Thank them often for their gifts of ministry to you. I appreciated Amy's work this morning particularly Uh, Little did she know, 
or she did full well know that what she was doing in her drama work with us was showing us one of life's very central principles. And that principle was begin by saying goodbye. And it's not that we have not been prepared for dying. It simply is that we have not noticed the many calls that come along the way to help us to say, well, in this circumstance I need to let go And in this circumstance, I need to let go. And sometimes it's very simple things. Sometimes it's the toaster going off in the morning. Sometimes it's the coffee or the alarm clock. We're closing a phase of our life and moving on to the next. There are a couple of assumptions that I would like to make clear as we begin our work together this morning. One of those assumptions is that I have come to a place in my spiritual life where I trust God with anything that I bring to the bedside. Uh, I have to be creative to work within an environment with so many different people and so many different perspectives. I have three things that I will share with you this morning that speak very clearly and may even stretch you a bit as far as their use, but they have become wonderful tools to use at the bedside for at least three individuals. Uh, The second assumption that I would like to clarify for you today is that uh, there is a very clear commitment in my thinking that revelation and truth, or revelation and truth that leads us to understand human experiences better, uh, are rooted in two Jewish concepts. One of the Jewish sages uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago spoke of narrow mind. And the second Jewish sage spoke of broader or spacious mind. I'll not try to stumble through the Hebrew. That's not a language that I have learned well. But uh, the important concept, I think, that was central to these Jewish sages was that they said to us, In order to shift from narrow mind to spacious mind, you had to at least embrace four Jewish spiritual practices. One was the practice of meditation. The second was chanting, and I noticed chanting in one of the hymns that you sang today. Uh, The deliberate intentional prayer of a person and study. Uh, They did not see spacious mind or narrow mind uh, as enemies of each other. They spoke of them as complementary. Life experience comes into our spaciousness and forces us, I think as Amy did in this rocking chair so well, to then try to use our narrow mind to clarify and to understand what it is that we're going through. the rabbis felt that as we entered into deepening spiritual practices, it would help us to let go of our attempt at trying to understand an experience and spaciously open ourselves to experience more of God. The concern I think that the rabbis were attempting to address, at least my narrow mind, limited understanding of their words, was that in narrow mind, if we're not careful, we can end up being rooted in selfishness 
we can end up being wrapped in fear constantly, and fear is a normal emotion that journeys with us along the path of our dying. Or we can become so caught up in everything that is centered in us that we block out the ability of those individuals around us to respond healthfully to our journey. Uh, Two passages of Scripture, I think, are very formative for uh, my journey with people who die. The first comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is a season, a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. I see this almost every day of my life. The second passage comes from Isaiah 43. Fear not, I have redeemed you. You sang about this this morning. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. Let me share with you the poem of a little girl that I worked with years ago. As she was facing her death through chemotherapy, she wrote this piece and leukemia. Have you ever watched kids on a merry-go-round or listened to the rain slapping on the ground? Ever followed a butterfly's erratic flight or gazed at the sun into the fading night? You'd better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short. The music won't last. Don't run through each day on the fly. When you ask how you are, do you hear the reply? When the day is done, do you lie in your bed with the next hundred chores running through your head? You'd better slow down. Don't dance so fast. Time is short. The music won't last. Even told your child, well, we'll do it tomorrow. And in your haste, not see their sorrow. Ever lost, ever last touch, let a good friend die, cause you'll never have time to call and say hi. You'd better slow down, don't dance so fast. Time is short, the music won't last. When you run so fast to get somewhere, you miss half the fun of getting there. When you worry and hurry through your day, it is like an unopened gift thrown away. Life is not a race. Don't take it slow. Do take it slower. Hear the music before the song is over. Quite a wise little young lady as she embraced the reality of her soon coming death. One of the questions that came to us was related to fear at age 57 and is fear normal? I think as we talk about these situations that I have brought to you, uh, it will speak to that issue as being pretty common for us as we move into new territory. Uh, Someone here wants to look at the pros and cons of cremation. Uh, That might be a broader issue than we have time to look at today. Um, Someone is concerned about the disease and its confusion and fear that they might say something that would not be appropriate for their families. 
Uh, notice the movement with the illustrations that I'm going to present to you this morning and see if you can't find some of your questions unstated, unaddressed. I met Agnes several years ago. Uh, she had just moved into a local retirement community and she spoke about the reality being so relieved. Her husband was a very wealthy man and had a large home and square footage beyond her ability to care for now, and her apartment was only 940 square feet. And she was just celebrating the fact of having such an easy place to keep. Her husband Joseph had died from advanced Parkinson's several years before. Periodically I would see her around the community with a sparkle in her eye because she was having the time of her life. She loved her neighbors and was adjusting to life in the community far better than many. She called one afternoon and left a note with my secretary saying that would I pray for her, she was going to be admitted to the hospital and have possible surgery. And the secretary indicated that her voice dropped when she said, my physician expressed deep concern. She was uh, diagnosed with serious illness. Her hospitalization went well. Her recovery, even in rehab, seemed to be going quite well. But there was this underlying issue of concerns about so many aspects of her life. She talked to me about the Sid's death of her first baby. She talked about the death of her parents, the death of a sister, the death of a brother, painful job losses, all kinds of experiences in her life which now, because of illness, were focusing her attention. Palliative care seemed to be going well. She was having more blessed days than not. But she invited me into her space one day and said, Al, would you come? Uh, I really want to talk to you, not so much as the chaplain, but as a spiritual director, spiritual guide. And she said to me, you know, I've shared with you a lot of my pain and a lot of my struggle. Is there anything out there in the church's life that could help me to focus and know more clearly what it is that I need to be praying about? And this is what came to my mind. I don't know whether you're familiar with this. We do have one of them at the University of Redlands in the back of the outside chapel area. This is a labyrinth. comes out of the 14th century church. It was the end of a pilgrimage kind of thing where you would carefully, reflectively walk through the labyrinth, considering why you started the pilgrimage. Uh, when you entered this area, this was the Holy of Holies, and that's where you offered your prayer. So at Grace Cathedral they made one, and I purchased it, and uh, wondered what in the world I was going to do with it, but I've learned to trust nudges and bought it anyway. Uh, Agnes came out of a very conservative religious environment, uh, so have I. And I wondered, you know, this is the idea that comes to mind, really a stretch for her. And I said, well, this is what I think might help. And she sort of frowned, you know, not sure what I was talking about. And uh, I, she said, bring it by and let's talk some more. And I brought it by and explained generally how it might be used. But I said, the important piece of this is that the preparation is rooted in silence. 
And she said, I think I want you to leave it. So I, I left it, and she asked that I come back in an hour or so. And I wondered and prayed and trusted that the nurses would leave her alone. And the nurse did place a do not disturb sign on the door. And for some miraculous reason, no one bothered her, which in a hospital is unbelievable. When I came back to her room, it was evident that something had transpired. Her face was aglow. And she quickly invited me in and sat down, and tears were still flowing down her face. And I said, what happened? And she said, Al, at every curve of the labyrinth walk that I did with my finger, the Spirit of God came with greater clarity and focused for me what it was that I needed to deal with about a particular loss in my life. And I said, well then what happened when you moved to that symbolic place of the Holy of Holies? She said, I entered that space with such clarity. I knew what I needed to pray about. And as I prayed, I sensed the movement of God healing and restoring my life in so many ways. This prayer meditative process for her gave her the insight and the clarity to deal with her children who were coming because they had heard from the physician that uh, she probably wasn't going to live too long. She was able to speak to them directly about this experience that I've just shared with you. She was able to look at them very clearly and speak to the fact that God has brought me such peace and such hope that the reality of the fact that I'm dying is second. It's not the primary concern of the moment. Uh, she had difficulty with one of her sons. Uh, James just couldn't, couldn't honor what mother was about. Uh, raised in that same conservative religious environment and uh, the ICU doctors that we work with um, often become very anxious when we conservative folk come because we usually don't have our act together about this subject at all. And she looked at me and she said, you, you really need to talk to him. I really want to hold on until he is resolved on this issue. I spent several hours in concerned pastoral care with him. And over the days, uh, he was able finally to come and give release to his mom to die with peace and dignity. Uh, the key, I think, that's important for us here is she was willing to take a risk, exposed to something entirely out of her faith tradition, and only discovered that God moved deeply and meaningfully in her heart and life. She said these, these two things to me toward the end of her journey. I'm holding on until my son is able to work through his issues, even though it will cause me more suffering. Um, think about your movement toward dying and what it is that is going to cause you to hold on and suffer more. Uh, later on in the week, she said this to me, Please, Al, help him soon. I can't take it much longer. This issue of dying is relationally based. We don't do it alone, nor should we 
talk about it alone. We need to include those of our loved ones in the journey toward death and dying. The scripture reminds us that was shared this morning by Lou and myself that there are qualities of this journey that are essential for us. Two of them I just mentioned. One is that you are honored in the process and that you are lifted up in that process. Spiritually formative practices enable us to do just that. And I believe if we look intentionally at our dying, it will move us to a deeper level of prayer. It will move us to explore spiritual resources that will help deepen our personal, intimate relationship with Christ. I received a call from someone in our laboratory. It's been 10 or 12 years ago now, but the story uh, rings loud and true to me. Uh, The medical technologist said, I'm talking to one of our employees. She happens to be Hindu. Do you have any trouble with that, Al? And I said, no. Uh, I said, if she wishes to come, uh, have her do so. I would be privileged to listen to her story and concern. Uh, Little did I know that this Hindu woman by the name of Rita, which is an Americanized name, obviously, had had some difficult experiences with Protestant clergy. Uh, I really don't like to get involved with other people's issues on those concerns. I try to be myself. But she came and was hesitating as she came. But as she tells the story, uh, if you're familiar with people from other cultures, they often come to America and they will buy one home and there'll be four or five or six families living in that home until they can jointly help each other buy a home of their own. Well, in this particular family, things were going slower than everybody anticipated, and as you could imagine, people were getting on each other's nerves, and people were barking and biting and arguing and fussing over space. And um, the, the thing that pushed Rita to come to see me was that the patriarch of the family had been diagnosed with serious illness and the doctor said there was limited technology that could be done, more of keeping him comfortable. And he was greatly disturbed about all of the turmoil. So she came, wanting to do two things. She said, I want to talk with you and I hear that you're a man of prayer and would you pray with me? I said, I can easily accommodate those requests. So each week she would come and talk to me about what was going on. And at the conclusion of our time together, we would pray. About the third week out, Rita comes in and says to me at the end of the session, I'm going to L.A. to talk to my Hindu advisor. Al doesn't really know much about Hinduism at that point. And I look at her and say, uh, would you be free and comfortable to talk to me about what he shares with you? Oh, yes, I'll be glad to do that, she says, and goes off. The next Monday, she comes in and, as often, talks about family, the dynamics, the, the recent fights that they've had, and the tears, the pain that she's feeling. Toward the end of the session, she looks at me and uh, says, you asked about the Hindu advisor. Uh, These are Hindu prayer beads. 
foreign to a pastor in the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, I, I said, what are they? What do you do with them? And she said, he gave me a mantra to pray. Now, mantra in contemporary evangelical circles can be very alarming. Let me try to quiet that for you. John Wesley, Charles Wesley, 18th century. Uh, they're the sort of the parents of Wesleyan theology. Charles writes in his journal in Georgia, one of the things that I'm using to help early-born Christians deepen their roots in Christ is to give them a phrase and have them repeat it over and over and over again because that phrase to them is very meaningful. So I, at least I had that frame of reference to work. And uh, she, I, I said to her, Rita, what did he ask you to do? And she said, well, I'm to pray this mantra prayer a hundred times a day. Well, you know, quick glance, I thought, one rotation of the beads, that doesn't look too bad. Uh, and she said, oh, no. She said, one mantra prayer is one rotation of the beads. And I said, how many times? A hundred times a day, you said? What was the mantra that he gave you? And she rattled it off in Hindi, knowing that I wouldn't understand. And I laughed, and she laughed. And then I said, could you put that in simple English for this poor preacher? And she became very reflective. And this is what she said back to me. The mantra in English would be this. Oh God, come to the most intimate place of my being and do with me as you wish. Well, my mouth flew open and she caught my surprise and said, you seem to be shocked. I said, I'm blown out of the water. Anybody who would wish to pray that prayer would long to be a holy person. And she said, oh, yes. I said, how are you going to do this? Now, this is week four. She had said to me, all of this is going to be resolved in seven weeks. My faith was small. I know too much about human dynamics. It wasn't going to be resolved. So I began to ask what are you trying to teach me, Lord? She looked at me with deep conviction and she said, I will pray the hundred mantra prayers at night. I'll be up most of the night doing that. She left have, having given me these beads and I went home. And I sat down in the family room and my wife came over and sat down beside me. And I said, this woman has deeply, deeply troubled my soul. Shared the story. I said, I'm going to my prayer space, and uh, I don't want to be bothered. No calls. If anybody comes for me, I'm not home, not available. And I said, Lord, this woman is praying this thing a hundred times a day with deep intention and deep purpose. Uh, I want to try this and see. So I tried to pray that prayer only to discover it took me an hour and a half one time to pray it with deliberate intention. I would catch myself rushing, moving quickly. But remember the context that Reed is moving in. She's got a multiple family complex, family system confusion and pain with the patriarch of the family dying at home. Sometimes it can be the loved ones who do the prayer work. Sometimes it can be the patient. Week seven, she came back to my office 
a glow on her face, a smile that was clearly convincing to me something major had occurred. And she said, Friday evening last. Uh, Interesting, Sabbath evening. family began to make restitution. Do you still preach about that in Adventist circles? Restitution, confession, acknowledging their stubbornness and narrow-mindedness. All of the issues came to resolution. The patriarch sitting in the corner, she said, hearing all of this movement going on, finally looked at her and said, thank you, Rita, for being so faithful to prayer about us as our family. Now I can die in peace. You see the movement from narrow mind to spacious mind? But that movement takes time and takes energy and takes commitment. You'll have to tell me, Chris, if I'm getting too long. Um... Millie was a patient that came into my life. She was in her early 50s, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer with uh, nodal involvement and spread of her illness. Uh, She looked sadly at me one afternoon and said, you know, I felt the lump nine months ago and just ignored it. I wish I could go back and redo that choice. But our choices form and shape who we are. Through the journey of diagnosis and surgery, even though the surgeon said, uh, we may be able to give you a, a small amount of time with some aggressive treatment, but we're not expecting much. Uh, choosing to go ahead and pursue that, uh, she began to look at this issue of... Um, her physical changes. Uh, And she would shift her focus at times and talk about those changes from the standpoint of uh, crucifixion. And it became so evident in the journey that I thought, well, if she's going to root it in the passion experience of our Lord, maybe there's something that can help us to move her through that more healthfully. And... uh, This is a painting that I found years ago in the museum in Kansas City. I don't know whether you'll be able to see this, but you can come take a look at it later. Uh, This is a painting that was done in 1510 of the suffering Christ. It's probably the most graphic portrait of the suffering Jesus I have ever seen. And again, Millie's coming out of a fairly conservative religious environment, for Redlands is in a fairly conservative area. And they got this crazy chaplain who thinks that God can use anything that he brings to the bedside. And I, I say to her, I have this painting, and I don't know whether you'd ever want to set with it or not. And I began to describe the painting, and she said, I think I would like to see that. So I brought it in the next day and laid it in her lap. And she said to me what Chris said this morning when she first encountered it. She said, it makes tears come to my eyes. I don't have this painting out. It's too intense. I only use it for special occasions like this. And she said, well, what would I do with it? And in Russian Orthodoxy, they use icons. Interestingly enough, when I began to study, 
uh, I found out that what I'd been taught as a child wasn't correct about them. <laughs> because I thought they were praying to these images. And that's not what they do. They use them to gaze into the eyes of the Christ to move to a deeper level of awareness of who Jesus is for them in light of the current crisis. So I explained that to her, and she looked pretty questioning, but said, leave it with me, and I'll see what I can do. The next day, I came in to join her and discovered a woman who had been deeply moved by an experience far beyond her rootage theologically. These are the things she said to me. She spoke of her connection with Christ's journey in a number of ways. Tearfully, she says this, the flowing of breast milk for nourishment has been taken away from me by this radical surgery. As she reflected on the memories of breastfeeding her own children. The radical scarring of my body and Christ's body, though horrific changes were made to each of us, somehow I have discovered a comfort in knowing that this body that I believe that has betrayed me is a body that Jesus is wounded with as well and now accompanies me in this journey. She talked about a felt sense of isolation, being distanced from others, feeling very alone in this painful time of being caught up in transformation. She said, I discovered a depth of anger and rage about what life had done to me and what I had done to myself, and expressed issues of grief and disappointment and fear. Then she took a deep sigh and she said this, I have never felt so enfolded in my life by this God that I've said I've worshipped for years. I just felt his loving embrace around me. She used a term that I think is so central to this walk toward death. And it's probably the place that you and I fail the most. Uh, We don't do a lot of accompanying people in their death. We visit short periods of time, but we don't accompany. Um, Again, turning to the 18th century, when people's life life expectancy was probably uh, 35, 40 years of age. You were old if you lived to 45 Wesley's converts didn't have a long life expectancy to live. And when they got ill, there was no significant medical care provided because it was still growing. The world of psychology had not yet been born, so there were limited understandings of the dynamics. And that's not to suggest that we in psychology know everything. But one of the things that you see in Wesley's journals is occasionally what I see at the bedside at the hospital where someone chooses to stay with and be with. They read scripture. They sang the hymns that Charles had written. And as people went through and expressed their fears, they found that scripture and him lifted their spirits and honored who they were and honored their journeys. That's some of the flavor that this woman brings to us. We could go on and on and on. I brought enough probably for two or three hours of work. 
but I don't want to do that. What I want to do today is to leave you with some human experiences of others where they face the reality of their dying and were willing to risk a journey into deeper intimacy with Christ. From observation of 35 years, if you begin to discipline your spiritual life with richer spiritual practices, my sense is you, like these, will be able to face death more openly and honestly. And your families will acknowledge that we have built some wonderful intersections of memory for the patient who's dying and for us who remain. Before Chris and I come to offer these issues to you, I have a fourfold blessing that I would like to give. May God bless you with restless discomfort about easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that you may seek boldly the truth and live deeper within your heart. May God bless you with holy anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that they may tirelessly work for justice, freedom, and peace among all. May God bless you with a gift of tears to shed with those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, or the loss of all they cherish, so they may reach out your hand to comfort them and transform their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe you really can make a difference in this world at the bedside so that you will be able with God's grace to do what others claim cannot be done. Amen. We'll just stand together here. We thought if you came in late, these pieces of paper came from us. We thought we would pray over them this morning as we conclude. Um, a prayer of surrender and release. Yes. And, uh, and then we'll join our voices with Kathy. You'll, you'll hear a familiar chorus and uh, join your voice at that time, would you? Let's pray. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit's presence this morning for the nudging that we feel to move from a place of comfort to a place of risk. We understand that letting go is risky business because we don't do it very well. So we ask for your spirit's prompting this week in our conversations and in our actions that we will do a little more letting go and open ourselves up to a greater movement of you within I believe when we make ourselves available, something more happens. And so we release these requests, these anxieties, these fears this morning. We give them to you. And in this act of surrender, we make a little more space for you in our lives. We thank you for hearing this prayer. We thank you for lingering even as we dismiss today. Thank you for lingering in our conversations together. And... um, We ask that you make us a community that attends death a little more sincerely, a little more compassionately, 
a little more open. Thank you for doing this work in us, for taking these cares and giving us peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.